How's that? Right, and I'm just going to... I can probably leave it on so I can see where to put where I put my charts when I do get around to my charts. Well, welcome everybody who's here at the Zen Centre and those of you who are on Zoom. Um, can you Zoom guys um, hear me all right? Just give me a wave if you can. Good, good, good. Hanya, you're in shadow, but uh, I see you wave. That's good. Um, so this is this is our first session on the Heart Sutra, and um, we're going to just um, attempt today to cover the title and the first four lines, and you'll see why <laughs> as we go on. Um, the Heart Sutra um, is called the Heart Sutra because it can, really does contain the essence of the teachings, um, and it's in, in this extremely succinct and pithy form, um, uh, just 40 just 54 lines of text um, but it's chanted daily right across all um, Mahayana Buddhist countries um, India, Vietnam, Tibet, Nepal, Bhutan, Mongolia, China, Korea, Japan um, uh, and it's really revered by, by millions of, of Buddhists across, across all these countries and also now in many Western countries and has been tra translated into many Western languages as well. Um, has it been ever translated into Maori? I, if I'd love to know, I really would. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, I talked to somebody years ago about some translating stuff, but um, nothing came of it. But we could look into look into that. I know the Dhammapada has been translated into Maori. Um, there are two ver two main versions of the text. One is a bit longer, and that's the one that's that's um, used in Tibet and the Vajrayana other Vajrayana countries. And then there's the one that we chant, which is the version that that um, all the countries which re received their Buddhism through China use. So it's um, that's our version, and it was first translated into Chinese. Uh, from Sanskrit around 179 of this era, so um, that places the the actual production of the of the sutra sometime before that, around the beginning of our common era, it's thought, um, and it forms part of the Prajnaparamita literature, and in that literature there are about 40 different sutras. Um, And this one, our one, came. If you look into those other sutras, you can find the the, the Heart Sutra as part of those other sutras in three different places. Um, so this has been this sutra has been studied and chanted for about two thousand years, um, and it still hasn't it hasn't lost its relevance. Um, in fact, you could say possibly even it's got more relevant. Um, its full title is the Mahaprajna Paramita Hridaya Sutra. Um, so we can just look at, we can break this down and, and have a look at the different parts here. Um, Maha means great or um, sometimes excellent and um, Prajna Paramita means the perfection of wisdom. Um, lots of different translations of that. Um, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, 
translates perfection of wisdom as perfect understanding. And he goes into how he prefers this word understanding because it has a sense of joining with something rather than being separate from. Um, but if we break, break down Prajnaparamita into, um, <coughs> into its parts, you have the first word is Prajna. And this sometimes, I think probably the most common way it's translated is transcendent wisdom. But um, what it really means is the wisdom that liberates the wisdom. Hello, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> we just saw you here. <laughs> um, so the, the wisdom, wisdom of emptiness is another... Um, or one one translator, and I forget which one now. Um, I think it's because um, um, Tanahashi says, "Wisdom beyond wisdom." So the sense of something that takes us beyond our suffering, takes us beyond our um, uh, afflictions. Um, and of course, prajna is the sixth of the six perfections: um, dana, shila, shanti, virya, dhyana, and prajna. Um, so dana is giving, shila is is right conduct, um, kshanti is forbearance or patience, um, virya is uh, enthusiasm or zeal, so translated as sometimes energy, um, dhyana is 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 the Indian the Sanskrit word for zen, so meditation, um, absorption, and then prajna is the last one, is the crowning one. Um, this, this wisdom of emptiness and um, Master Xing Yen says that, that the goal of the first five of the parameters is to develop the sixth one so it's the sixth is like the crown or the, or the, the fruit of the other five but then you could also equally say that you can't practice the other five without having a basis of wisdom a basis of understanding so there's a sort of um, symbiotic thing happening right there. Um, and then this paramita, um, literally paramita means from here to there, <laughs> um, but usually translated as crossing over, um, uh, crossing the sea, in other words, crossing over the sea of suffering to the other shore, the shore of liberation. So that's, a, that's the meaning of, um, the deeper meaning of paramita. So Maha Prajna Paramita Hridaya. This Hridaya uh, is heart or essence. And in, in, um, in the Japanese translation it becomes Shin, which is heart, heart mind. So, um, that we have an uh, affirming faith in mind. That's the character there for mind is Shin. So affirming faith in heart mind, really, we should be saying. Say that again, Nahisha. Is that implying that the heart has an instinct of its own? I think it's more it's more suggesting in this case that that um, the Prajna Paramita expresses the heart of the teaching. Uh, uh, but but it, but all through the teachings, whenever we say mind, we really mean heart mind or. 
Um, it's it's not it's it's never just the, the intellect. It's always it takes in the centre of our our um, emotions as well. So it sort of brings the heart the, the mind down in the body a bit. Um. So the heart sutra is meant as like a core teaching rather than anything to do with you know uh, your emotional standpoint. I think so. I think it, it's though we talk about all the emotions when we get into the into the five skandhas, but yeah, I think it's more to do with that. It's like the heart of the teaching, yeah, the, the, the essence, the essence of the teaching. And and even in the even in the first four lines, which we're going to look at, you can say the essence of the teaching is right in those four, first four lines. Um, Tanahashi, who's one of the translators, um, he he says the sutra summarizes the selfless experience of reality in meditation. Um, and this is, this is an important point for us because as meditators, the way that we approach the sutra is very much um, as uh, from a meditative perspective, not sort of um, an intellectual understanding, but, but coming to it as we would come even to a koan. Um, the longest... In the, in the Mahaprajnaparamita's literature, the longest sutra is um, 100,000 verses long, so it's an extremely lengthy text. Um, and the very shortest one, which I've, you've probably heard, some of you have heard me mention this before, the very shortest of the Prajnaparamita's sutras is a single syllable. A. A. Um, and so, in one sense, all of these different sutras, all of these um, 40 or so sutras, um, they can be expanded to 100,000 verses or they can be the, um, concentrated into a single syllable, ah. Um, but if you were to say, what, then that includes our sutra, the Heart Sutra, that it could be condensed even further. Uh, but if you say from the point of view of Zen, then... Um, the Heart Sutra, we can say that the Heart Sutra boils down to Mu, just the word Mu. Um, so, in a, in a sense, the way we approach the Heart Sutra is, is, is a kind of background to the practice and, and, and to our investigation of Mu or, or our true nature. Now, people most of you probably know this, but Mu comes from a, from the story, the koan. Um, a monk asked Joshu, does even a dog have the Buddha nature? And Joshu says, Mu, or Wu in Chinese. And the, that, that raises this big question, because in the Nirvana Sutra, it teaches that every living creature has the Buddha nature. So the question immediately arises out of that, well, why does Joshua say mu, which means not? So he's negating, the, seems to be negating the teachings. Um, and you could say the same thing when you look at the Heart Sutra, which says no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. But we, we couldn't be even discussing the sutra or reading the sutra if it wasn't for the fact that we do have an eye an ears, a nose, a tongue, body, and a mind. Um, so, what's that all about? What are, what's going on here? How can we have this negation when the, the evidence that in front of us is that we these things do exist? Um, and Albert Lowe, in his commentary, he says 
he says both the koan and the sutra push us to investigate what we usually take for granted. So that you could see that that's, that's the, what, how the, the sutra and the koan are the same. They kind of prompt us to look more deeply. Well, okay, if he's saying no I and nose, tongue, body, mind, how does, how does the sutra, and it's, it's Kanon who's, who's speaking, um, it's, well, that's one theory about the sutra, Kanon actually speaking about um, his or her direct experience. Um, what's, what's he talking about? What's going on here? Um, so we, we come to the sutra, we read it in a particular way. And um, uh, Master Sheng Yin and his, his commentary on the sutra, he um, talks about how we should read a sutra. You know, the Zen tradition is, oh, we're, we're, we're teaching beyond the sutras, not dependent on words and letters. So how come, if we're teaching beyond the sutras, how come we'd study the sutras? Um, and it's, it's t- what counts is how we um, approach them. And this is what um, Master Shigian says. It is not that it is impossible to gain wisdom from reading sutras. It depends on one's attitude. If one reads the sutras with an attitude of gaining intellectual understanding, wisdom will be elusive. On the other hand, if you approach sutras as a method of meditation or contemplation and commit your whole being to perceiving their meaning, it is, it is possible for wisdom to arise. So um, that's, the, that's the way to approach this, to really um, help it, let it be a help to you in raising that sense of perplexity. Um, what, are they, what are they talking about? What are they saying? Because it's, it's pretty r- radical what this sutra says. Um, so, as I said, <coughs> said before, and we're just going to try and um, look at the first four lines of the sutra. Um, the Bodhisattva of compassion from the depths of Prajna wisdom saw the emptiness of all five skandhas and sundered the bonds that cause all suffering. So, first of all, first up is this word Bodhisattva. So, all of you who have been doing the book club know now in great depth what a bodhisattva is. So anybody want to want to um, articulate that, put that into words? Go on, Ted. What's that? Beyond the words. <laughs> well, yes, but we're having to use words. There's a Zen answer. <laughs> anybody want to have a stab at it? Well, Bodhi, what does Bodhi mean? Enlightenment. Yeah, enlightenment. Awakeness. Yeah. And the other part? Being. Yeah, living being. So, um, enlightenment being would be um, one way of um, saying it, or um, an awake person. Um, Would a bodhisattva be the goal for all of us? What we aspire to, yeah, yeah. yeah um, 
It's also a process of getting there, isn't it? It's a being <laughs> bent on enlightenment. <clears throat> um, one way of thinking of it, because this is one of the questions I think that comes up when we look at this, is well, how, how to aspire to be a bodhisattva. They seem such exalted beings. But if you um, think of it as sometimes we're bodhisattvas and sometimes we're not. But if we can, any time, any time that we act selflessly, you could say we're being a bodhisattva, we're being an enlightened being. Um, when, we act, when we act out of that sense of, of connection we have with others. So, um, so this, this, this sutra is um, report, like kind of report bulletin from a bodhisattva on, on how um, he or she experiences things. And I say he or she because from a very early time, um, the bodhisattva of compassion has been depicted in both, both male and female forms. <coughs> Very, very common now, especially in East Asia, for it to be for for Kanon to be female, but originally um, there were, were both female and male forms. So um, the Bodhisattva of compassion. So this is Avalokiteshvara, Kanon, Guanyin, uh, Kwanam in, in Vietnamese. Um, Kanseom, I think, in, in Korea, that figure behind Ted is, is a Korean Bodhisattva compassion. So the, her name means contemplating liberation or perceiver, perceiver of the sounds of the world and um, not just physical sounds, but really it's a way of saying all phenomena, that, that this Bodhisattva can perceive all phenomena everywhere from the subtlest to the to the to uh, the most apparent, and is able to respond, and especially able to respond fearlessly. So this is the the high the kind of thing we aspire to to see and to and hear and to be able to respond. That's the that's the essence of of compassion. But the thing is, the only way she can do that is by seeing into into emptiness, and that's what the rest of the sutra is going to be about. Um, it says, from the depths of prajna wisdom, what what do you think that means? Being this this whole report that she's going to give us from the depths of prajna wisdom. The depths of her practice. Yeah, depths of practice. In other words, um, from a state of profound samadhi, or in other words, of union. Um, Samadhi means absorption, so there's nothing outside of it. Um, so from that deep state of this place of having penetrated into the truth, so not not sits, not sitting as at one side and looking at the truth, but joining with it, becoming it. Um, so um, that's that's what we're trying to um, do in our practice is, is become one with. Um, ourselves and with all, all other things as well. Now here's a question. Why, why, this is a sutra that's all about wisdom, it's all about prajna, and yet it's the Bodhisattva of compassion who's telling this, this giving this report. 
And this is different. There's no other of the Prajna's Paramita Sutras have Kanon as, this, as the main protagonist. Um, they'll have um, Manjushri will play a big role. Um, other other f- figures from the um, Ahats and so forth will, will play a role. But why why do you think we have com- the Bodhisattva of compassion as the protagonist in this particular sutra? And there is some evidence this was added. It wasn't in the original. It came from the big longer text, but it was added at a, at a later date. Um, any thoughts? No, no, People? We talk about wisdom and then compassion. They are both um, sides of the same coin. So if you've got wisdom, then there must be compassion. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not expressing myself now, but yeah, the two wings are the same bit. Yes, yes. Two yeah. sides of the same coin, yeah. Yeah, and so if you have, if if true wisdom will will give rise to compassion, mm. and compassion will um, bring com- wisdom without compassion can be kind of cold or distant, and so bringing bringing these two together and seeing how they're interrelated, that how could you possibly bear all the sufferings of the world? if you weren't able to see that everything is flowing and changing all the time. You know, it just would be, it would be unbearable. And so that, that's the point here, is that this sh- to be truly able to resonate with all suffering, she has to have this insight into um, the nature of things. Um, So right at the beginning, the first, you know, the first line of the sutra, the bodhisattva of compassion, um, and the, the nature of the bodhisattva, helping others without holding back in any way, without any kind of concern for one's own personal benefit. And I think here also, and this is a point that we're reminded of every time we end a sitting, um, is that the four, or the four vows... The first one is all beings without number I vow to liberate. And the last one, the last of the four, is about our personal salvation. You know, uh, how does it go? The great way of Buddha, thank you. <laughs> I vow to attain. So that's at the end. So you'd seem to think, oh, is that round the wrong way? How can I possibly save everybody without attaining enlightenment first? But... Um, is presenting this other side. You have to have the, com- the compassion in order to to cultivate the wisdom as well. Um, that is through being um, doing things, compassionate activities that we we um, also uh, develop or cultivate our wisdom. So so two sides. Like as Deb said, um, the two wings of a single bird, um, two sides of one coin. Okay, so that's. We've done the first line. <laughs> How are we going for time? We're okay. Um, um, so the, uh, from the de- no, we've done the first two lines because we've done the from the depths of prajna wisdom, from the steep, deep state of, of absorption. Saw the emptiness of all five skandhas. So this is a sticking point for many people. This word emptiness. Um, sometimes. People will use boundlessness or um, insubstantiality, groundlessness. Um, 
but it's something we it's something that um, it's helpful to sort of come at it from different sides. I've got a, um, a couple of quotes here to um, help us sort of get 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 what this means, what this emptiness means. And this one this one is from um, from Master Sheng Yin. Buddha Dharma holds that all things arise and disappear because of an ever-moving, ever-changing nexus of causes and temporal spatial conditions. The Buddha said that this arises because of that. And that disappears because this has disappeared. As such, nothing has genuine existence. The moment a phenomenon arises, it already begins to disintegrate. There is never uh, an instant of permanence. There is never an instant of permanence. Every moment that makes up our life is a mere process of experiencing. The apparent reality we experience is really an illusion. Emptiness is a synonym for just this groundless illusion. Every moment is groundless because neither the one who experiences nor that which is experienced nor the act of experiencing exists independently. So it's very specific. It's not saying that nothing exists. It's saying that everything that exists exists dependent on stuff that it isn't. Um, the, the best possible, simplest, clearest um, expression of this um, comes from, from Thich Nhat Hanh. And the, the name he gave to this, this um, phenomenon um, is interbeing. So things don't exist. They inter-exist, we could say. Many of you will have heard this, and it's something I often bring up in, in workshops to try and explain um, what the nature of things are. Um, but let me just read you um, a small part of it. This is coming from um, the introduction to Thich Nhat Hanh's tra um, translation of the Heart Sutra, which is called The Heart of Understanding. If you are a poet you will see clearly that there is a cloud floating in this sheet of paper. Without a cloud, there will be no rain. Without rain, the trees cannot grow, and without trees, we cannot make paper. The cloud is essential for the paper to exist. If the cloud is not here, the sheet of paper cannot be here either. So we can say that the cloud and the paper inter-are, Interbeing inter is a word that is not in the dictionary yet, but if we combine the prefix inter with the verb to be, we have a new verb, interbe. Without a cloud, we cannot have paper, so we can say that the cloud and the sheet of paper inter are. If we look into the sheet of paper even more deeply, we can see that the sunshine is in it. If the sunshine is not there, the forest cannot grow. In fact, nothing can grow. Even we cannot grow without the sunshine. And so we know that the sunshine is also in this sheet of paper. 
the paper and the sunshine into R. And if we continue to look, we can see the logger who cut the tree and brought it to the mill to be transformed into paper. And we see the wheat. We know that the logger cannot exist without his daily bread. And therefore the wheat that became his bread is also in this sheet of paper. And the logger's father and mother are in it too. When we look in this way, we see that without all these things, this sheet of paper cannot exist. Um, and of course this goes for us as well. You know, when we look into who we really are, um, what, we, what we discover is the whole universe. The Big Bang. Yeah, yeah, and, and the stuff we're made of um, came out of that Big Bang. <laughs> well, that's, that's what the, our substance is, but always, you know, as you say, moving, flux. Um, the way that Hakuin put it was, um, our true self is no self. And that's what this no self is. Everything that is not self enables us to be who and what we are. Um, one of the reasons I think why we have problem with this word emptiness is because um, it's kind of bleak. Um, uh, Mas Yen talks about there being five different kinds of emptiness. Um, and he starts off with the one that we sort of get from, uh, you know, French existentialists from after the war. Um, illusory emptiness felt by ordinary sentient beings, hollowness, alienation, meaninglessness, dread. And he adds that he this is a nihilistic view which has nothing to do with shunyata, with, with the concept of emptiness in Buddhism. I wonder, though, if that's actually true or whether there isn't some, for some of us, that we can kind of come to to look into emptiness, having experienced this, because it's you know this, this sense of hollowness and alienation, and meaninglessness can give rise to, and even dread can can motivate us to look into the nature of things, to look into, and and we might even be attracted to teachings of Buddhism around emptiness because we say, well, yeah, I can feel that. What what? But where do I go from there? Um, so he puts that as number one, and I think it's um, what if we what if we um, were to kind of make friends with our feelings of alienation and hollowness and look into them into meaning meaninglessness. The second one he lists is dialectical insights into emptiness, and so this is if we do intellectual sort of discussion um, dissection rather of reality. Um, sort of log logical, uh, philosophical examination, um, then we can we can intellectually understand that things have no substance. Um, and there are there are branches of Buddhist philosophy which which do this with very very um, strict rules of logic and and process. Then he lists the third one as the emptiness of individual self perceived those by those on the path to individual liberation. And so this would be um, where the nirvana is the goal, non-existence. 
Um, and then the last two sort of are close to each other um, and they're the ones that we would, would aim for as, as Zen practitioners, direct personal experience of emptiness that is not separate from form. So this is um, our goal as bodhisattvas, is to get to a place where we n neither attach to nor avoid self in phenomena. We don't have to reject anything or and we don't want to attach to anything. Um, and then the seeing the skandhas are empty but also existent. The practitioner does not seek nirvana but stays in samsara to liberate sentient beings. So this idea of staying in the suffering world because we we can um, help to liberate beings by by um, uh, transcending our, our our afflictions. And and um, now we come to the next bit of our um, four lines. So the emptiness of all five skandhas. So um, the skandhas. How would you briefly, in a few words, sum up what the skandhas are? It's really just a, a Buddhist way of talking about the body and the mind. Or, or um, material and spiritual. Literally, literal meaning skandhas is something like heaps, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's, that's really interesting. And I think it's very helpful to often to go and find out what the etymology is, what the literal meaning is. Um, literally means groups, aggregates, or heaps. And um, one way of thinking of it is... Um, of, of sand dunes, you know, these, these big heaps of stuff, but the, the wind comes along and blows bits of sand off one onto another one <laughs> and back. And so they're shifting and changing. They may look quite stable when you look at them from a distance, but actually they're, they're shifting and changing all the time. Um, and the first one, now I do have a chart for this. Okay. Yeah, I was reading it from the philosophers. David Hume in the 1700s, a Scottish came to the conclusion that he looked into himself and he couldn't find the self. He could only find bundles. That's bundles. Yeah, yeah. Well, I yeah. think he was into the same thing. 
Or somebody said you could say different systems. You know, there was these different systems, but they're all, all um, um, interrelated, so they don't say static. But we've got, what we have is form, sensation, perception, volition, and consciousness. Form, sensation, perception, volition, and consciousness. So the first one, form, is the one that gets repeated a lot within the Heart Sutra. Form is only emptiness, emptiness only form. Form is no other than emptiness, emptiness no other form. And um, generally this one is associated with the physical realm. So in other words, our bodies and, and the things around us. Um, and traditionally these were understood to be made up of the four elements. I think that's up here somewhere. Oh, there yeah, so earth, water, fire, wind, five sense faculties and the six sense objects. So my, my sense faculties, say my, my hearing, um, and also the things I hear, they're both part of the form realm. Um, and then um, there's an interesting 11th one. The, all of these, got in the Abhidharma, they get divided up. You don't have to you know, learn this or anything, but the 11th one includes vows. So this is really interesting that our, uh, our vows are a kind of form, and when we take a vow, we formulate, we, we form ourselves, we inform ourselves. Um, it's probably a bit more than just the physical realm, though, form, because another way that they are, it's defined as anything that can be perceived, imagined, or known. So that immediately seems to be including mental forms, form, forms of the mind. Um, so that's the, that's the the physical part, anyway, and then the other four, sensation, perception, volition, consciousness, they're the mental realm. And just to quickly go through these, um, sensation, um, best translation probably for sensation is feeling tone, and this is the thing, it's what happens when we connect with something, it's the simplest way of thinking about it. Any time we connect with something, we experience something, we either experience it as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So that's vedana, or sensation. So it's just, just when, we, when we have a contact with something, there's that experience. We, we have those three types of experience. Um, and then perception is the next one. Um, this is when we have an awareness that we've interacted with something. And literally, this perception is knowing together. So it's when we recognize something, when we discriminate, when we, we judge it, we give it a label. Um, that all comes under perception. And then volition, this is a hard one to get the right sort of collective noun for it, but um, it's, it's the decisions or the intentions we have to respond. Sometimes it's translated as motivation, but also mental formations. And this, this um, on the far side of this chart, I don't know if people on screen will be able to see it very clearly, but um, there's said to be 51 different um, states of mental, different kinds of mental formations. And they're all the things that, that um, they affect us they affect the mind, so we, we, we react, the way we react to things in the external world, for instance, um, also makes impressions in our mind as well, our mind stream. And then the last one is consciousness. 
And when I first sort of started looking at these skandhas, it was very confusing because surely consciousness includes perception and sensation and volition, and actually it does. These are not, they're not divided up into neat little parcels. They're more like overlapping, interrelated things. They're, it's like somebody's taken a cake and cut it into, into five slices, but actually you can't do that. It's a whole, it's a whole thing, and they're all the different parts interact with each other. Um, so the, the consciousness is, is just the three out the previous ones, but it's also more than that in the sense that it's the I that makes meaning. It's, it's, um, it's where we create karma, um, and particularly it's the illusion of self that that's what carries on from life to life, you know, that we, that, um, we the sense, this delusive sense of being separate is what is, um, is the self-perpetuating mechanism. It perpetuates the self. So this is what the what the Bodhisattva of Compassion sees into and sees as being these shifting heaps rather than something fixed. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about five rivers throwing, flowing through us as a way to understand the skandhas. Or the one that I find helpful is five great sand dunes off on the horizon that look so solid and so massive. Um, yet there are all these, these grand, this granular change happening all the time. And then, last line, and sundered the bonds that cause all suffering. So, um, bonds, bonds. What are about bonds? It's what we cling to, you know. It's it's what we, um, uh, and, and, and fundamentally, it's a clinging to our sense of who and what we are and who and what things are. Um, and it takes, yeah, you could you could say it, we can break it down again into many many different guises: greed, hatred, indifference, arrogance, escapism, expectation, jealousy, envy, pride. Self-deprecation, cruelty. I mean, the list is very, very big. Um, but all that all have this this core either attachment to self or attachment to other, which can be negative attachment. It can be aversion as well. Um, and it takes it takes a lot of energy to overcome these afflictions. So this um, this is where virya comes in. That that one of the perfections here it takes takes in energy application um, and so this is where we could say cultivating a quiet mind is is not the whole story we have to take up the parameters as a way of um, giving us a kind of framework and the, um, for interacting with others and and eroding these these bonds that, that bind us and the wisdom is the basis it's the in insight into emptiness I want to make sure we've got a bit of time for discussion, so um, we've just got one word to go, <laughs> and that is suffering. Um, it's under the bonds that cause all suffering. And they've got this other chart here. Um, can you hold it up? No, it's this one. Oh, it's this one that you're going to put up. up. Right. And so suffering, that, again, these things get broken down. There's the sufferings of the body birth, sickness, old age and death, and then the sufferings of the mind, 
and I think we can all relate to these ones especially <laughs> not getting what we want having to tolerate what we don't want being separated from people and things that we cherish um, and then the third categorization of suffering is suffering of because of the five skandhas so Suffering that just comes out of our clinging to any aspect of the five skandhas, which the Tibetans call the perishing collection, just because they're impermanent. And so we, it's, it's just suffering is built in. If you attach to things that are impermanent, then you're going to suffer. Um, Henri Bergson said, it's not that things change, it's that things are change. That's, the, that's actually the nature, the, the, the essence of things, of this world we live in, is that it's, it's shifting and changing all the time. So the locus of our suffering is, is, is the five skandhas. So that's why if, body, if, if the Bodhisattva of compassion sees into the nature of the skandhas, then she, she liberates herself and us from, from suffering. But she doesn't stop responding. That's the that's the important thing to, to notice here. I think that's enough. <laughs> um, so we're going to um, just have the last fifteen minutes or so um, until noon, just um, just discussing um, anything issues that that people have have come up for people as we talk about this um, and I did throw down a couple of questions um, that people might want to discuss but they may have other things that are more alive. Um, the two questions I have uh, are how can we contemplate being bodhisattvas when we struggle to help ourselves? In other words, what can we rely on right now, here and now? And, and then just having heard of these different types of emptiness, just to talk a, bit, a little bit about the different kinds of emptiness we've experienced ourselves. Um, yeah, so really, just to, finish, to sum up, these first four lines of the sutra, they, they have the whole of it in it. So the whole sutra is right here in these first few lines, really. So we'll just be exploring this further in the, in the subsequent three, three sessions. We'll just cut up the sutra and look at a bit of it each time. Um, yeah, it all comes down to Lou in the end. Yeah. Okay, um, Hanya, anything you want to, any of you are on Zoom want to throw in? Um, no? <laughs> no? Th is, are you muted? Are you all muted? Maybe you are. No, I'm, I'm live. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, discussion round. Sorry, we missed that. Us, our small Zoom group here could have a discussion. Sorry, could you hear me now? Yes, yes, I can. So we'll leave you. We'll leave you to discuss. Okay. Bye, bye, everybody. That end. Bye. Bye, bye. Lots of hands.
packet of stuff you could say, but then you also have the mind that has to process that. And um, there's done all sorts of studies um, showing the way in which we we take shortcuts with our visual or other auditory processing, and so we see things which aren't there, or we see things we don't see things that are there. Yeah, I've been hearing about an experiment that some scientists did in Austria, <coughs> because apparently our, we actually see things through the, the lens of the eye. Actually, the light waves are twist upside down, so in actual fact, we see it upside. Physically, we see it upside down, but our mind twists it back to the you know the way we yeah. want to see it. See it. Yeah. So what they did was they got some chap or group of people and they put them with special goggles on that stopped it being so that in actual fact they they were actually seeing things upside down. But after a, during the day, about halfway through the day their minds flipped over and then sort everything the right way. And then after that, the next day, they took the goggles off and everybody sort everything upside down. And then the mind itself then flicked it flipped back. It back. Yeah. See, yeah. It's, a, it's just amazing. He's written on, on pre-lingual hearing loss as well and the effect on the mind of, of yeah. pre-lingual deafness. But um, what you're saying also applies to the new technology with the cochlear implants because the brain relearns the electronic buzzy sounds, relearns them in that, in that period of adjustment and turns it into sounding like spoken English again, spoken yeah. whatever language. Yeah. So it is amazing. Yeah, mm. and it just gives you the also sense of how, how much room there is for um, mistakes, you know, um, and that to, to it's a really big step, and we all do this to lesser or greater degree, is when we realise that um, we can't take our experience at face value, that, that, that actually we are in some sense um, seeing stuff that is, is illusory in quite fundamental ways. And so just that is, is um, it's really the beginning of, of, of realising the first noble truth of, of right view. Uh, beginning to understand just how how much how much we we need to question our assumptions about what we're experiencing. You mean the first of the eightfold path with the right view? Did yeah. I say? What did I say? First noble truth. Oh, first yeah. yes, sorry, first of the eightfold path. Yeah. So if somebody lost a limb, would that be the same mental thing? And they still believe the love is easy. Yes, phantom love. Yeah. It's the same There's manifestation. Yeah, incredible stuff about that, yeah. And how they can do therapy now to get you to the point where you can... Because it also can be very painful. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I was talking about seeing things that are different. I always remember when I was on the ship, so I was a cargo person, but there was a young lad on there, and he was a really staunch... Um, Protestant for Northern Ireland, mm -hmm. and um, of course every 12th of July, he, he always, you know, he used, they celebrate the Battle of the Boyne, and when King William the Fourth went over and you know, defeated James, and he usually the picture of, of William is always on a white horse charging into the battle, you know. Well, if we're on the on the ship, and somebody produced a, a, a printout of a picture of. of William doing this, but 
but he was on a black, it was a black horse in this particular picture. But this young lad, so we put it up for him to you know, celebrate his, it's his day. And he came along and he said, oh, there's William on his white horse. <laughs> he was absolutely convinced that that was a white horse. <laughs> yeah, it says of the mind. It's like, like the time the internet had a mental breakdown of the color of this dress. Do you remember that? There was, oh, yeah, yeah. was this dress that some people saw as white and gold, and he and other people as quite uh, different perceptions. Black and blue, yeah, something That's like the same that. Same picture. That, that could happen with colorblindness too. All those colorblindness is the same. Right, all those pictures you can get, and you look at it one way, and you see an old woman, yeah. you look at it the other yeah. way, yeah. you see a, a, a young woman. Or you see animals. There's one going around on the Facebook at the moment. Do you see the animal, or do you see the human? And it's kind of like animals making up the shape of human beings. That question, how can we contemplate being bodhisattvas when we struggle to help ourselves? <laughs> that certainly lies for me away. Yeah. yeah. Anybody got any thoughts on that? In terms of being on the path? How, what, whatever, um, we talked about the skandhas. Is there somewhere on the skandhas that there might be a, um, a kind of path? If you look at the five skandhas, um, form, feeling, feeling tone, perception, um, mental formations, and volition, and consciousness. In terms of um, being, you know, being imperfect, not seeing things clearly. Um, you know, feeling like we have a long way to go in, in just helping ourselves, and yet we're presented with this ideal of, of uh, selfless interaction with things. What, what, any thoughts about that? Well, one being that because we suffer ourselves, we can connect with other people's suffering. I suppose that occurred to me just now. If it's awareness, yeah, we're yeah. suffering, yeah. 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 Investigating the skandhas that we get free of them, so they are the path in some way. Yeah. To view them with compassion for yourself and for others. Yeah, and that's what Sally is saying too. You know, just um, you being able to resonate when we when we deeply experience our own suffering, then we can resonate with people. That's um, that story of um, Damon Pang's daughter. Throwing herself down. Fell off the bridge. Yeah. <laughs> and the daughter it. came up and threw herself on the floor here yeah, yeah. alongside her. Yeah. <laughs> Those crazy pangs. <laughs> Is it about seeing our own imperfections as well as trying to correct our imperfections? Yeah, seeing that. And then the last one is also you think of the, the mental formations. These are um, decisions we make about how we do things that affect the nature of the mind. So the big thing in terms of the bodhisattva's path is intention, you know, and that's where making making vows comes in. Even if we, you know, we fall down a million times, we don't live up to the vow to keep making the vows because that's setting us. It's like it's setting our course, at least in a in a direction, even though the um, the goal may seem very remote 
if, if we're just going in that direction. Like Thich Hans when he talks about the, the North Star, you know, you don't ever actually reach the North Star, but you can navigate by it. You can you can set your course, and and so through that skanda of the intentions that shape the mind, we can we can um, try and head in the right direction at least, even if we don't ever reach the goal. Anything else for people who haven't said anything yet? Come to mind. Throw a lot of I'm, stuff at you. I'm wondering how I'm going to hold on to all of that. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> so, so Hopefully it's recording. Yeah. Oh, God. Yes, it is. Lights on. Yeah, yeah, lights on, and it's, it hasn't run out of battery yet. So, so yeah, I mean... Even the visuals are, are really helpful I process things visually. Are we able to shrink them down to an A4 or um, just take a photo of them? You're welcome to take a photo of them. I just didn't get to putting them into a type version for the, for the meeting today. Are you volunteering? <laughs> take a photo yeah. of the printer? There's no type of that. I mean, these, these, kind of things, these, these kind of things are available online, aren't they? If, if if we could Probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah, summaries of that kind of stuff. Is it Abhidharma stuff or is it Matt? Uh, it's Abhidharma. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe I could look up a link, see if I can find it. Yeah, that'd link. be great, Sammy, if you were. Okay. Uh, we had a so workshop yesterday, so I only had limited time to. to um, what is Abhidharma? Yeah. It's a Theravada source of. But it's also studied in the Mayana. Yeah, it's yeah. one of the approaches that's got... So this, this, this bit goes with that. that that's some first. Yeah. Yeah. We've gone over a little bit over time, so maybe I'll stop the, stop the recorder now and... Um, um,